Well, welcome in, everybody. This is the Solar Insights Podcast. My name is Eric Saar. I've got Matt Norlander here of CBS Sports, college basketball writer, and happens to be my cousin, in to talk about this entire great NCAA tournament and the draft. How are you doing, Matt? Oh, Eric, it is great to talk with you. And I'm sorry we couldn't do this in person. You know, I was obviously in Phoenix for the Final Four, and you live uh, just a little bit north there in Glendale. And game, you know, just the workflow and then the flight out the next morning. It would have been great to do this in person, but I'm happy we're doing it now and uh, thrilled to be on the podcast. And, yeah, man, I mean, we can talk tournament if you want because I've still got some afterglow of that Final (laughs) Four in the tournament. But I know, listen, man. You know your stuff when it comes to NBA and the Suns particularly, so I'm ready to, you know, whatever realm you want to talk about, draft prospects and all that good stuff, let's get into it. Where do you want to start? Where do you want to go with? Well, I do want to start with, um, I talked to Sam, as you know, your friend Sam Vecini, um, about pre-draft stuff, and I want to get your general take on how was the, was this a good tournament, was this an interesting tournament, um, and then we'll talk about the Final Four stuff in a second. But in general, do we have good upsets? Do we have good storylines? How did, how did it play out? I thought it was – good question. I, I thought this year's tournament – first of all, the tournament delivers every single year, Eric. Mm-hmm. The way that it delivers is always different because the moments we get are – are we arrive at those moments in such different ways and on these bent paths, so to speak. Uh, was it an all-time tournament? No. Big picture, you get North Carolina – redeeming itself after losing at the buzzer to Villanova in 2016. It comes back. It wins the national championship the next year. It's only the fourth time that's ever happened in NCAA tournament history where a team has lost the title game one year and the very next year wins the title. In fact, North Carolina has done that once before in its history uh, with the title that Jordan company won back in the early 80s. Um, The Michigan story and them getting to the Sweet 16 after they had the plane scare – was an interesting one. If they had made the Elite Eight, it would have been a, a huge story, in my opinion. But the fact that they won the Big Ten tournament, then went on and won a great game against Oklahoma State, and then upset Louisville, that was a big-time thing. Um, South Carolina, Gonzaga, Oregon, all getting to the Final Four, each brought interesting storylines. We had a couple of good buzzer beaters with North Carolina getting past Kentucky the way that it did in that mm-hmm. frantic finish. And, of course, Florida winning in the tournament's only true buzzer beater, because actually Carolina's buzzer beater happened with 0.3 seconds to go on the clock. Chris Chioza for Florida, I was there at the Garden in that tremendous Sweet 16 game as Chioza just let an awkward three-pointer go with his team down two. Time expires. They miss that. They lose the game, but he hits it, and they win. Um, Not an insane amount of upsets. In fact, Eric, in terms of the first weekend, Mm -hmm. it was one of the chalkiest uh, first and second rounds we've ever had. It wasn't the chalkiest. It was in the top five, though. Um, but overall, a satisfactory tournament. And, uh, you know, it it gave us enough there. And there was enough intrigue to where it'll be able to hold us over, so to speak, until until next season. Um, and and enough, enough good teams were in the tournament that bring enough people back next year that I think we'll still have plenty of interest for college basketball in terms of the carryover from one season to the next. Definitely. There was um, seemingly not controversy about the final game with all the fouls and then the uh, the last turnover there at the last second where it seemed like a North Carolina player had their foot out of bounds while touching the ball, and yet North Carolina got the ball. What do you think about that and kind of how it played out there? Right. So, so yeah, it was Kennedy makes his hand from Carolina. I did not see that in real time. And in fact, I guess most people probably didn't because it was only on replay. Um, 
the title game. See, what's interesting to me, Eric, as we've we've now moved more than a week removed from the title game, it will be remembered. Like I think it will be remembered first for Carolina winning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I don't think anyone will remember is the fact that Joel Berry won the most outstanding player because yeah. uh, <laughs> there was not really a a, a true. Like, Williams Goss would have been a great one if Gonzaga won. He would have been the natural pick. With Carolina, they didn't really, like, you could easily argue that Meeks should have had it over Barry. Um, the fouls were an issue, but I do believe most of the fouls that were called were rightful fouls. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the officials, for the most part, officiated the game well. Those just happened to be two teams that defend in certain ways. There are a couple ones that were frustrating. I get that. And by the way, though, you mentioned the, the hand out of bounds with Meeks. Um, on a previous possession, Gonzaga wrongfully got the ball back um, after a possession where it should have been Carolina ball, and they ended up hitting a three. So both things, you know, even out in their own kind of quirky yeah. ways. But you're right; it wasn't. It was not a. It was not a great watch. Um, it was the second worst title game I've ever attended to UConn beating Butler in 2011, which was my first Final Four. That one was brutal. That was a brutal game. In fact, that game is infamous for how bad it was. Wow. I don't get the sense that this game will ultimately be remembered for that. It might be something of a footnote, but ultimately it's Gonzaga got to the title game. Remember the first time they ever did that, and that was the first time they ever had their one and done was Zach Collins who came off the bench, and it was a really close game, and then Roy Williams got his third, and Carolina got redemption. And then real quick, Eric, what this will also be remembered for, and we don't really have the context for this yet, and it's going to take a year or two or three, is the NCAA is investigating North Carolina right mm-hmm. now. Now, the investigation has nothing, and plenty of your listeners are aware of this, but the investigation has nothing to do with this team. It's it's alleged academic fraud that happened in the you know mid to late 90s and then over into the, the 2000s, and it dealt with student-athletes and non-student-athletes at the University of North Carolina, but it's a case unlike anything the NCAA has ever taken on before. Um, but what might happen here, and I don't think this will happen, but this title is safe. It's, it's, it's going to be there forever. But if the NCAA, for whatever reason, opted to vacate a title from 2005 or 2009 from North Carolina, this could be the one that was seen as, quote-unquote, uh, the clean Carolina title. Oh. I'm not sure if they, I'm not sure if that's what's going to you know also be part of the story here. Time will only tell with that. But for, for Roy Williams, see. right? Yeah, yeah. Roy Williams and the program in general. We shall uh, we shall see. But overall, an interesting Final Four given the the teams that were there. But ultimately ends with a guy winning a national title. Uh, the only one of the three who had previously won one, obviously. Dana Altman at Oregon still doesn't have one. Mark Few Gonzaga still doesn't have one. And Frank Martin at South Carolina is still, uh, you know, without a national title. But the fact that all those three got to the Final Four in this year made for a very interesting quartet. Certainly was compelling. My prediction was almost exactly right if they hadn't, if uh, someone hadn't made a three at the end or had, would have made it. It was, I called North Carolina by three on your podcast, and uh, when, which was pretty cool to hang out with. Uh, for everybody listening, I think I mentioned on Twitter, but I got to hang out with Matt and all these amazing basketball writers for college and pick their brains about all these players. So that's where some of my quote-unquote expertise is coming from. But I was so close on that prediction. <laughs> you were. And, uh, hey, man, listen, I know you're all about the NBA, but occasionally if you want to just dip your toe into the college hoops pool, you're uh, you're obviously more than welcome. Yeah, I, I see some stuff. I see. I follow a bunch of people. I follow Jeff and Jeff and everybody else and Sam. And we get the, and of course you and we 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 get some interesting things. 
But let's turn our attention to to the NBA in a sense. Um, I just did a little bit of the the uh, Draft Express stuff, trying to see. It's kind of funny whenever we watch Draft Express, we're like, "Oh, definitely pick this guy for sure, absolute number one." And then we watch the weakness one, and we say, "Ah, only if the draft slot is right." Every time, no matter yeah. who the player is. <laughs> so okay, so what in what realm do you want to talk about? Like for Phoenix, do you want to talk about top prospects? What are well, you thinking? Let's give a, let's give a little bit of a, some background to our listeners here. The number the number where the draft lottery is coming up here in a, in a few weeks, I guess, or a little bit a little bit more than that. And uh, so Brooklyn is going to give a, has the most odds, and they're giving it to Boston. And the Phoenix was able to out tank the Lakers, who basically won five in a row, of course, because they're the Lakers. Uh, they win the games that don't matter and lose the ones that do. Well, that's not their legacy, but we'll see. I mean, they were unfortunate in winning these five games here. Um, and they're the third most odds to to win the number one pick. Then Philadelphia, Orlando, Minnesota, New York, Sacramento, Dallas. So I do want to – I was looking at their – right now I have ranked those about those top four guys, um, Lonzo Ball, uh, Markel Fultz, Jason Tatum, Josh Jackson – I have them right now. I'm I'm a Markel Fultz believer, and you're not, from what I hear. And I want to hear your reason for Markel Fultz not going number one. Okay, I would not qualify myself as a non-believer in Markel okay. Fultz. Okay. I would I would say that there are a lot of people very in on Markel Fultz being the safest pick in this draft, and I am not on that wagon. He's not the safest pick. He's the best, I think. I okay, so here's my here's my deal with faults. Um, it's some of its obvious skepticism, but the fact now he had a good year, but his team was terrible. Mm-hmm. It didn't correlate to any sort of winning. I mean, Washington, granted they had some young pieces around him, and he was good. It it's a little disconcerting to me, and I had spoken with Markel on the phone earlier this season. Um, I'm sure the losing bothered him, but I did not get the sense that it really, really bothered him. Mm. And he was a late bloomer of a prospect. He had said that the college game was no harder to, than him, to him than the high school game. When you make a statement like that and your team is continually losing, it's a minor red flag to me. Yeah. Um, I wonder... Like I think his game will adapt well in terms of being a lead guard at the NBA level. I I just don't know if everything is going to be able to convert at the next level. He's a really good player, but I would feel much better, and I know team needs can often come into play here. Um, I would feel better about taking Josh Jackson, Jason Tatum. I would feel better about taking Markel Fultz's really good friend, Dennis Smith. Now, I'm probably the only person that you're going to talk to that's going to say that because Dennis Smith Jr., who played at NC State and also had a bad team, um, has more deficiencies without a doubt. I happen to believe that Dennis Smith Jr. will grow into the best overall NBA player of the four point guards in this class that are going to be lottery picks, and that's Markel Fultz, Lonzo Ball, uh, Dennis Smith and D. Aaron Fox. So pull the hot take you, cannon. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's not um, a hot take cannon. I know. But yeah, so re- regardless, um, I'm in on faults. Generally speaking, 
I'm just not sold on him as being a clear-cut number one guy. I would yeah. definitely take Josh Jackson, and I would definitely take Jason Tatum over him. Yeah, I definitely – there's no clear-cut number one for sure. Those top – for me, the top four guys, I didn't really do see too much because I'm just – those four are the, the most famous as going towards the top there. Um, for me, when I was looking at them, I think Mark Fultz would go so well with Booker. I mean, so well. I mean, if you're going to trade Bledsoe, Knight, and Chandler or whatever – and you want to re you're restarting or whatever, or not restarting, but building around Booker instead of around Bledsoe. Markel Fultz, I think, would go really well with Booker. Um, Guys Josh are going to want a lot of shots there, Eric. What? So it's not that it can't happen, but Booker and Fultz are both going to want a lot of shots there. Um, I wonder how that, uh, you know, that that can work. Don't get me wrong. Um, and it could be potentially very enticing for Suns fans. Uh, I'm not convinced that both those two would absolutely play, you know, at their best together. Just yeah, just the defend the de- on the defensive end, it would be good. You know, on the it would, be, it would be workable on the uh, and then the length and the height and the ability to create shots versus play off ball a little bit. I guess there may be a lot of shots there, and but the intensity I, th- I just think would go well. Um, for Josh Jackson, his shot bugs the heck out of me. Oh my gosh, I cannot. He needs to fix that. I know I know it technically works and stuff, but the hitch in it drives me crazy. Um, he has a lot of like we obviously the little off court stuff is red flag, but he does have he would also go well as the three. Although he's like the anti Warren, it seems like Warren's good at everything that he's not good at almost exclusively. Um, so Warren, I mean Josh Jackson would also be really good as a three if you're gonna replace um, Warren there. I mean. It would work to help out to help that that way. Booker can just do what he does, and Josh Jackson's there. I really liked actually Jason Tatum better than Josh Jackson, and I want to hear your thoughts on that on between those two because basically you're not getting a shooting guard ever because Booker's there for the next decade. Um, you're getting a point guard or or a small forward, so it's either Ball and Fultz or it's Ball Fultz, Fultz Fox or Smith, and then it's either Tatum or. Uh, or Jackson at the three. So between Tatum and Jackson, um, what do you think is the better player? Higher ceiling, higher floor, and like things like that. Yeah, Tatum, the higher floor. Uh, probably the higher floor. I don't know. They're both even. A higher ceiling is Jackson. Tatum, they're both really good. I mean, Tatum's going to uh, – Eric, I think Tatum's going to be able to average – like through his first five seasons of the NBA, I think he'll be averaging about 18 to 20 points a game. Uh, very silky. Uh, really good rebounder, great shooter from the mid-range. Um, we want to see if he can really develop a three-point shot from the NBA distance. Yeah. Uh, good finisher. I think he's got a toughness to his game that's underrated. Now, defensively, I actually think he is, uh, and we kind of talked about this in Phoenix when uh, we were sitting there with Jeff Goodman and, and company, uh, and Goodman's not as in on Tatum defensively. I actually happen to believe that Tatum will round out into a – a merely solid defender. In fact, Eric, I often think that in terms of talking about prospects and players at the next level, it's almost as if people only talk about players in terms of being absolutely amazing defenders, really good defenders, or they can't defend. When the reality is the majority of NBA players are right in that acceptable realm, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Tatum will grow into that. Now, Jackson is a great defender. He seems uh, like he, yeah. 
He is a great defender, has good length. He will be able to guard. I think he'll be able to guard four positions at the NBA level, basically. Um, If the shot bothers you a little bit, that's understandable because it's the only thing about Jackson's game right now that you've got question marks on. I will also say this, though, and it feels like every year we get into a rhythm of talking about these prospects and and you know it's it's important to keep in mind give it, look at a draft in a given year how many players in a given draft wind up being worthwhile players and i'm not talking about just all stars i'm talking about a worthwhile player i would define as you stick in the league for at least 7 seasons and you can contribute you know decently and well enough and 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 start in at least four of those 7 seasons okay, okay. um plenty of guys don't make it that long and plenty of guys that do are missing a certain skill set on the floor, whether it's having a long-range shot or just being an outright terrible defender mm-hmm. or not being able to rebound whatsoever. Um, whatever the skill set they're lacking is, they, they do enough other really good things to validate their inclusion on a roster. Mm-hmm. And with Josh Jackson, he's going to be in the league more than a decade because yes. he'll have the length, the agility, the defensive ability. Uh, he'll be crashing the boards. I just... To me, he is too good to pass up from a top four perspective, and that's why I think you'll see him go. I am, generally speaking, I am intrigued to see how the lottery breaks up, not just the four guys we've talked about here, Eric, but there's a lot of talent here, and it's why, and we can get back to specific prospects if you want in a second, but there's been a lot made of the Lakers blowing their chance to tank the Knicks on the final night of the season like wound up winning or were winning and fans were getting all bent out of shape yeah. about it. I actually think that this season is sort of tank-proof because, yes. you know what, I'm not convinced that any the player that you get at four versus the player you get at two versus the player you get at six, it's I mean, you just might have a guy fall to you that helps you no matter what. So I actually don't think that this year is really a year that people should be concerning themselves with tanking. Exactly. It's, it's, it's flat. It's like... It doesn't like the Suns are the two, but they could fall to the four, and that's okay. Now Suns fans want want the Lakers to fall to four so they lose their pick because that would be amazing. Right. But, but the it doesn't matter where you fall in one, two, three, four, five around there because any of the four guys we talked about plus the guys you're mentioning as well are good enough to help you. Now back to Josh Jackson, I agree with you that he's going to be Andre Robinson. He's going to be that. Amazing defender who can help you and do all this stuff. But as we kind of discussed a little bit, I think we're at the position we don't know yet. Obviously, he can morph a little bit. But Booker is not seemingly going to be the best player on a championship team. He's very, very possibly a good, good two second player, best player on a championship team. So the problem is I don't think if we're looking for that next player, it's not Josh Jackson in terms of the best player on a championship team. I think it could be Fultz or Tatum, maybe. I mean, we're projecting quite a bit. But it's like we're not looking for a role player at the top if you get the number one pick. You're not looking for someone who is going to be that. Although if he falls to you at four, I am so happy. But that's kind of my thought process behind the Josh Jackson, um, behind those two, three guys. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned real quick on Jackson. You mentioned the red flag stuff, off court stuff. You know he uh, he basically was standing up for a teammate. The Kansas stuff was a mess this year off the floor. Yeah. Um, and I can't even. I don't even want to get too down into that rabbit hole. But the basis of a lot of that stuff was 
he would defend himself as though he was standing up for one of his teammates. Um, he did thousands upon thousands of dollars to damage uh, uh, on a female Kansas basketball player's car. Um, so he'll there might be some little bit of skepticism if he goes through interviews. I only bring that up to say Jason Tatum will pass the interview with flying colors. He's mature, yeah. Uh, yeah, Tatum will win the interview. Um, Lonzo will win the interview. Fultz casual, will probably win the interview, but like at the same time, again, if he says a lot of the stuff that he's been saying, if I'm a GM, I don't know. I just got to see. Like I spoke, I sat and talked with Dennis Smith Jr. this year. Uh, in the midst of like their terrible losing at NC State, and actually got some stuff that I haven't yet written for a for a profile that I'm gonna have go up at some point in May. But even in the midst of that, like I got more of a sense of. And granted, I talked to Fultz on the phone, and I got Smith in person, so those things have to be taken into mm, account. Yeah. Um, but if I'm a like I got to, I, I don't know, I got more of a sense of perspective from Smith than I did from Fultz. And again, I'm not saying that Fultz will not be a really good NBA player. I think that that is a very like likely possibility. I'm just saying that this notion that he is a clear cut number one and is the safest pick, I just I I push back against that. He could he could be the fifth best player in this draft in ten years from now, yeah, and it I mean, wouldn't speak any less of his ability because of how talented the, this draft is in the lottery. Yeah, this is a flat draft, and this actually talks about what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with with all the guys is that this is kind of like, in a sense, in this exact sense, like the 15 Booker, Booker everybody else draft, um, because, I mean, we don't, like he like you said, he could go number one, but it could be worse. Jalil Okafor was the absolute number one player for uh, like a year before the draft. And then he is now at least the seventh best player from that draft, if that. I know. I was so in on Okafor in college, by the way. Oh, yeah? Uh, well, he showed so much potential and he so did. much versatility in, on the post, but his defense is is really bad. I mean, there's that there's that video of him like not even doing anything and just like walking around like a zombie on one possession. It was hilarious. <laughs> hilarious and frightening. That's um, <laughs> in terms of what the Suns can slash will do, who they'll have available – uh, let me just let me quickly turn a question on you, Eric. Here, um, who do you think of any player is the best? Like, don't don't even like you know. If you think it's one of the four we've talked about, that's fine. But if you think there's anyone else, by all means, bring it up. But who do you think would be the best fit for the projected future? And with that, I have to include the fact that there are clearly going to be elements in here with players leaving and some that you might be able to pick, some that you might not be able to. But again, if you've got an elite pick in a draft, you're taking a piece that you are going to build around. So mm-hmm. who do you think is the best fit for Booker overall? Well, from the guys that I mean, I haven't obviously done nearly as much research on this. Um, so far, it seems like it's, it's false. Cause, Cause it's like, like it's like you said, I mean, their draft, they have Chris, they have Bender, they, have Len, although he's probably I'm not thinking that they're, they're going to re-sign him. They got Williams, they got Ulis, so they have their backup point guard for the next decade, and Ulis for sure. But I don't think he's good enough to start. He's too small to start, but he is probably the best backup power point guard for the next decade. Um, so they they need a starting point guard um, and then a starting small forward. 
if they're if you're going to replace Warren if if Warren isn't up to it, which like we've talked about on the podcast and in person, that his defensive um, positioning and his three point shot are the things he needs to work on. Uh, if you get one of one of them fixed, he's pretty good. If he gets both of them fixed, he I don't know where that puts him. That's kind of amazing. But if any of these players are better than them, then that's where you go. So there's like with Warren, it's Jason Tatum or it's Josh Jackson. Um, I'm kind of iffy on all three. I can't decide who of the three is going to be the best player um, mm. for the for the uh, point guards. Then if there's Ball, there's there's Fultz, which I'm I'm right now I'm the highest on Fultz. But I do want to hear before I figure out this uh, who's the best fit. Well, let me let me just answer the question, then we'll get to it. I think the I mean shooting because because Booker is going to get grab double teams all decade. He's going to get double teams. You need to have somebody who can shoot, which is why I was down on. I think it was Fox, was it Fox who's like Alfred Payton a little bit. Um, and the yeah, although he had a really nice yeah. And generally yeah. speaking, yes, but so, he's he's a little. I think he's a little better and will grow to be better with his shot than Payton. But continue. So basically, it's like, I mean, Booker is not a spot up shooter. He can, but he's not. And so he he's really good with a ball in his hands. So. If you're, I mean, if you have Josh, ja- I'd rather not have Josh Jackson in the corner as opposed to Tatum or pay, opposed to whoever is a better shooter. So a sh- good shooter would be really helpful. A good shooter, rebounder, and someone who can be versatile. Because I mean, you got Chris and you got Bender. If 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 it ends up eventually maybe being Bender at the center, Chris at the four, and then whoever at the three, you already have the defensive. You need a shooter. You need a someone who can do perimeter defending though. So maybe that's Josh Jackson. Maybe you can learn learn into it. So yeah, really I sure. mean there could be some Tatum there too. Tatum's perimeter defending needs a lot of work. Yeah, uh, I mean a lot I of it know. is they're all too young to know what you need yet. I think the way you build a core in the NBA is you have your player, your one, your two, but you have your two players who are the, the all stars, and then you build around that five years from now. Like you don't, you don't. You take best player available, develop them, and you figure out in five years with free agent signings, with other draft picks, and you slot them in because it's not like here's something that I talked about on the podcast a couple times. There's nowhere in the CBA does it say that your core has to be within three or four years of each other. Otherwise, you're not eligible to win the NBA championship. It seems like people are Mm -hmm. saying all around Twitter, all around the place that, oh, trade Bledsoe, trade everybody unless they're within 20 or 20, 20 to 22 so that they all grew up at the same time as Booker. Best example, 2014 Spurs, Kawhi is like 22 at the time. Well, the big three are over the age of 32, I think, 33. So, and they win the championship. It It's, there's the big, big dog, little dog. They switch roles, they change. So it's like, I don't think that we need to know who this, who fits around Booker so well right now. Um, it could be this draft, next draft, the next draft after that, that we'll find the person that will pair well with him. Uh, like I said, though, the biggest trait is shooting to go with Booker shooting because Chris can kind of do it, Bender can kind of do it, but if everybody can do it a little bit, then you have something there for small ball. Yeah, uh, I'm not in on Chris, as you know. Marquise yep. Chris uh, wasn't in on him in college. I'm not in on him in, in the NBA. I'm not in on him in regard to him being one of the four most important players on a roster oh, yeah, at the NBA not, level. Maybe not, not even one of the most five most important players. I do like what you're talking about a lot here, Eric. Um, Draft on talent, draft on your evaluations, draft on the guy that you think is best, 
and try and develop him. Without a doubt, I think there's a lot of value there. And yeah, you know what? If you're the youngest team in the NBA and you're going to stay the youngest team in the NBA for another year or two, but the dividends to that, to getting your head beaten in, you know, 40 times a year, is that come 2019, 2020, you're going to have a seasoned team that has learned how to win as a group and that has a collective knowledge, desire, hunger to finally want to push through, make the playoffs. I think that there is a way to building that way. Now, I think the challenge, and listen, college hoops is my forte. I follow the NBA here and there. I'm not in it on a day-to-day grind. But what I don't think has ever happened in the history of the league, and if it has, feel free to correct me, or if there are listeners, you know, you can at mention me on Twitter. I just don't know. It's it's a matter of like what Phoenix wants to do, what it can do, what its ultimate vision is. Because has a team ever been as bad and as young as Phoenix, grown organically through the draft mostly, okay, with its core? And turn that into not even a championship level team, but a but a conference final level type of team. If it's happened, I don't think it's happened all that often. Yeah. Um, and that's not even to say that they should ignore the free agent market because obviously you should not do that. But I'm so very in on if you think that your five best players are all under the age of 24 or 23, but they're your five best players – and that you can make it work, and that you think you've got the pieces to make that work, then stick with it for a year or two. Almost have this old-school approach, this three decades, four decades-old approach, and maybe it works out that way because you know what? Maybe Devin Booker becomes a top 15 player in the NBA, and maybe whomever you draft in the lottery in the top five this year turns into a top 30 player in the NBA within three seasons from now. And if you've got that, perhaps you've got enough there um, that – Something happens where you're able to then – I agree in terms of Booker not being the best player on a championship team. I think that's right, although, man, things can change quickly in the NBA. But even if that remained the case and you felt like you could flip assets and get someone that was just a notch above Booker to Phoenix, then maybe you've got something there. Phoenix is in a very interesting position. Obviously, it's it's in a position that no other team in the NBA is in right now. Yeah, for sure. I w- it would surprise you maybe to know about book. I mean, he, I mean, let's see here. I'm trying to look it up right now. Where'd it go? Uh, in terms of, uh, I think he was, let me see if he still is there. I think he landed at 25th. Yeah. It looked like he's still probably 25th in the league in scoring this year. So he, I mean, that's pretty impressive for a 20 year old. I would have even guessed, if you had me guess, Eric, Mm -hmm. I would have said like 16 or 17. So that's even lower than I expected. Yeah, there's too many players. I mean, there's too many players. There's too many teams for him to only, I mean, scoring 22 points a game. So there's, I mean, you got the five or six that are scoring around 28. Um, Yeah, you got to throw in like Mello, Hayward. Did Russell? Did Russell lead the league in scoring this year out of curiosity? uh, Because I I don't know that. uh, The season's not over till tonight or tomorrow, but yeah, he'll, he'll get there. Okay, and he averaged a triple double for the season too. Right, and he got forty two triple doubles in the season, which is more than Oscar Robertson. <laughs> right. Um. So yeah, he, uh, so Booker's going to get there. He's going to get like he'll he'll average twenty eight points a game for most of his career. I mean, it's going to happen. 
and his efficiency will be there, and his... That's a high number. You said 28? 20, I mean, Westbrook and Harden are averaging 30 right now, I think, about... For their so. career? But no, I'm no, talking for, like... For their okay. prime. I, I mean for their prime, for his prime. Per game? Per game. For um, game. Booker, 28. So, uh, man. He's already at 22. I mean, if you're yeah. averaging 20... Well, hold on. Let's, let's, let's reconcile these philosophies then. Because... I would define you as the alpha on a championship level team if you're putting up better than 25 a game. Uh, if you think Booker's going to be able to put up 28, that would mean he would probably have to be the best player on his team. Um, well, I guess that means best player versus most impactful. Like, like, yeah. hmm, that's interesting because he may, he may. That's uh, that's so that's interesting because he may, but I, I guess I'm not. I guess I'm trying to be cautious because yeah, he can he. I mean. He, He's, I don't know if he's a good enough defender for the next couple of years to be that impactful to take yeah. his team to the conference finals. Like once he has enough pieces around him that have matured enough. So it's really, I guess the general thing, this whole thing is pick, it doesn't matter who necessarily fits around Booker yet. Um, but you're basically, you're having to make the decision on who you draft versus Bledsoe versus Warren. And that's the decision they're making. I think because yeah. I think they're already going to get rid of Knight and probably Chandler, but not Barbosa or Dudley. And then, I mean, <laughs> then you. I think they were only playing people under 24 this last game. 24 and under was their entire um, yeah. roster because it's just Dudley, Barbosa, Chandler, Bledsoe, and Knight that are over 24. Okay. So yeah, so that's interesting. Um, what do you think? Uh, I guess this, nah. the Celtics and the Lakers. I don't know if you know about te- you don't know what team fits as much, but uh, like I think we were talking about this with all the guys with Goodman and stuff. Would they? I think I heard them say that uh, Lonzo Ball, the Celtics, would be like the worst fit. What do you think about that? Well, I yeah, here's I I can't speak to fit in terms of like Lonzo and what. Like Boston's the number one team in the East now with the seeding. They locked that up. And um I real quick on Lonzo overall. Um like obviously his dad wants to go to LA. His dad's actually and like his dad said has said publicly, I think on a couple of occasions now, that he basically is gonna be a non entity at the pro level. Remember he's got two more kids showing up yeah. and playing at UCLA in the coming years, so he'll make plenty of noise uh in Westwood in that regard. Lonzo playing for Brad Stevens. Uh, when you just say Lonzo Ball and his acumen playing for Brad Stevens, I think yes, that could work. But obviously they've got the Isaiah Thomas factor there, and I mean I've probably seen the Celtics. I'll be honest here, I've probably watched a combined, I don't know, forty minutes in real time of Boston Celtics basketball this season, just because I watch so much college. Yeah. Um, now I'll watch plenty of Celtics in the playoffs cup coming, but Mike, I set that up for you for this, Eric, for this reason is Isaiah Thomas, like a true lead guard. Like he essentially plays the point, but is also the first option to score. Is that what he does in that offense for Boston? Absolutely. Absolutely. And basically they have such a stacked roster with, I mean, I think Terry Rozier is his backup, but, uh, you got Bradley and you got Crowder and you got Jalen Brown and you have a uh, Marcus Smart. Marcus like Smart, yeah. I don't know if I don't know if Lonzo can. I mean, he's not good enough defensively to crack that because he's not going to play instead of Thomas. And if you sure. put Lonzo Ball with Isaiah Thomas, you will get destroyed on the defensive everything. 
Well, okay, so Lonzo's not a terrible defender, but I agree. But that's, um, that's what I was saying when you were here in Phoenix is that I agree that Lonzo's probably not defensive terribly, but you need to have a, an absolute plus defender next to Isaiah Thomas to not get killed. Is, Tom, is Thomas, he's like among the very worst, is that right? Um, he's he's small. Okay, not among the very wor- worst. I mean, he doesn't have the – he's small, and he – uses so much energy on the offensive end to run everything, orchestrate everything. And I yeah. just, I just, I guess it's more of a anecdotal thing. I don't see Isaiah Thomas being Isaiah Thomas without having the great Avery, Avery Bradley, Jay Crowder, or Marcus Smart around him. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, overall, Lonzo real quick on his game. Since, Definitely. You know, we're talking to him. Um, I see the whereas like if if you're talking point guards i think the the consensus among the four is that Dennis Smith has the widest like the highest ceiling versus lowest floor mm-hmm. people think he has the biggest gap i actually think lonzo has the biggest gap Interesting. um yeah i i think he's a little flat-footed um i don't have an issue with his shooting form but it's almost one of those like, okay, you did it at college. I almost got to see you try and pull this off against the best in the world, it's gross and though. see how you can come off screens with that shot because the hitch is the hitch, man. You can't. You, the angle is not going to help you coming off from the left there. Um, I do wonder about his ability to stay in front of guys. But I also will say, and and uh, you know, I, I listen to Dan Patrick's radio show, and he has mentioned this. He mentions this every year. Listen, like if you're a minus defender, but people can't stop you, then that's okay. Okay, mm-hmm. like if if what he can bring to a team and his ability to pass and people that can't stop what he wants to do, then then that's going to overcome any sort of defensive efficiencies that he might have. We get so invested in this notion of like he can't defend at the NBA level, he can't defend at the NBA level, but there is so much value, so much value to being able to do things at a top 20 level offensively in the NBA, that that's what often you get drafted on. And Lonzo's potential, his vision, his maturity on the floor, his ability to see and move, I mean, he absolutely could do it. Now, I will also say this. The last player who had the kind of dazzle and I point you're guard... Say. <laughs> the last player... Who am I, I going to say? You're going to say um, Kendall Marshall. No, I'm no? not going to say Kendall Marshall. No, no, I'm not. I'm going to say D'Angelo Russell was oh. the last player in okay. college who had the kind of point guard potential. Wow, did you see what? How did he even get the ball there? How did he make that kind of play? Um, Russell, how would you grade Russell right now it, through his career? It's been what, like two years? Um, how would you? Is he a top 200 player in, in the NBA right top now? Top 200. Um, probably, probably, probably top 200. I mean, he's like second best best player on his team, but that's the Lakers who are pretty horrible. I mean, it's so him. he's probably so he second best on the bad Lakers team. He's actually probably then he's probably a top 100 player. Yeah, it's there. But he, he's to me he's streaky, and I'm not really a Russell guy. But yeah. uh, there's side of people Jabari who are Jabari Davis who are Russell people, and actually understand him better than i seem to um he does have the razzle dazzle there that but that's the question i was next question i was gonna bring up was does lonzo go with d'angelo or are you are you switching him out and you got to trade exactly something like that that's the question well there's okay so i'm all for experimentation 
just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean it can't be done now, kind of in regard to what we were talking about, Phoenix and its core building. Um, you would definitely have people say, you can't have D'Angelo Russell and Lonzo Ball. Like, you got two guys running the floor. Why not, though? Like, if it works and it works and they're that smart and they can adapt with each other, you'd have an attack on, like, anything else well, in the league. I'm not well, saying that it would work. Every single person in the last five years would beg to differ because the Suns tried that with two three-point guards, Bledsoe, Dragic, Thomas, and it did not work. <laughs> it was a flaming pile of garbage. And there. so there's the there's the question. So I want to, I mean, people are going to listen to this and they're going to bring that up. And so I think that that may be None why. of those players entered the NBA with the kind of reputation for being eyes in the back of the head, past first point guards, the way that both Russell and Ball are. So that's, that's the only difference, sure. though. That's for sure. That's that's the caveat that they make it work. And it's not. And if it's two point guards instead of three, there you go. Now, would they be good enough defensively? That's the question. Um, who could who of those two can guard twos? I mean, I think Lonzo's a good rebounder, but can Lonzo could guard twos. Could guard I think twos? he could. Okay. Yeah, I think he'd be decent enough at guarding twos. Okay. Um, again, we have to allow guys to be able to grow, put some weight on. Uh, another thing that people need to remind themselves when talking about these college players is there's restrictions on how often they can yep. practice. Once you go to the NBA, it's your life. It's your profession. You can spend as much time weight room, practice, whatever, to get better. You do. That's why when you see a guy three years out of college, and if you put a side-by-side photo next to each other, you can clearly see how and why these guys' bodies develop so well and how they're able to put on and sustain 15 pounds of muscle, and yet their games don't you know, take a dip despite the fact that their, their body type is so drastically different from what they were in college uh, because it's a full-time profession. So definitely. I definitely – like Lonzo needs to put on at least 10 pounds, and I think that he will at the next level. Um He's very interesting to watch. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that he will not flame out. And I don't even think like he's he's so good that I think actually he'll be in the NBA for more than a decade. But all I'm saying is, I don't think he'll be the best player in this draft. No. no. And if you told me that he was the 18th best player in this draft seven years from now, I would believe it. Only in this regard, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying I can envision it, Eric. If the defense really never caught on, um, if the shot became a serious issue, um, if his lack of athleticism turned into something that he couldn't overcome, Mm -hmm. I could see all those things kind of working against him. Uh, And then the fourth element here is that and this is a good or a bad thing. We'll have to we'll have to wait and see. Steve Alford basically built his offense this season with the perfect complementary pieces around Lonzo at UCLA. It was the most entertaining, enjoyable team to watch with the basketball and college basketball this past season. How much of that was the system? How much of that was Lonzo? And obviously it was clearly a blend of both. But let's see what team he goes to and how much that system will be able to adapt to his skill set. I'm totally fascinated by what he'll become. I can't give you strong convictions on him and what the future holds for Lonzo. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to me, both the draft lottery where everybody gets slotted and then on the draft night, it's going to be very, very interesting just because of how, well, to me, obviously how high the suns are and then how flat the draft is and what people need and things like that. Um, I was just looking at the uh, rankings here, whatever Philadelphia, Orlando are basically going to pick whoever they 
can, whoever's available, because they just need, well, they need, <laughs> I guess Ben Simmons may be point guard for the Sixers, it seems like, but they need point guards, they need everything that's not Embiid, so, and Simmons, and then Orlando just needs everything. Um, Minnesota, Minnesota needs a, a three guard, so a small forward. What do you, I mean, who do you think is in that range that's a three guard, maybe, if they land at um, six? A three guard? Or a, a small forward. Yeah, like a wing type. Mm-hmm. Um, who can shoot? Uh, who can shoot, and they would need them? Um, who would definitely I mean, or, fall? Or a four, because it depends on what Wiggins plays, because they got Rubio or Dunn, Levine, Wiggins, and uh, Towns, and they need one other player to go with them. <laughs> Monk is too small. I'm not even big on Malik Monk. Um I'm trying to think, like, if they wanted to get, uh, you're saying power like, forward, power forward. Go. for sure, a power forward, probably, yeah, probably power forward. Mark Jonathan Hannon? Isaac, probably. Jonathan Isaac. Yeah, who's the best? Mark Hannon's not a bad pick there. Um, Who are the Markin top three bigs in this draft? Mark Hannon, Isaac, and um, top three bigs. Uh, Mark Hannon. Isaac. Actually, you know what? I like Collins more. I'd say Markinen, Collins. Next big. Oh man, it's 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 rough. Okay. <laughs> well, it's not rough, rough. It's just there's um. I mean, take there's a lot to be debated here. I guess it would be Isaac, Markinen, Isaac, and Zach Collins. Collins. Because okay. real quick, Eric, I'll run down. Uh, like Jared Allen coming out of Texas, uh, I actually thought that he would be so much better with one more year of college, but he's going to go off a of potential. Dude, I could see him drifting into the ether, never to be heard from again three years from now. <laughs> I like him. I just think that he would have been a possible top five pick next year if he'd come back. He opts to leave. So anyway, Allen... I mean, John Collins at Wake Forest, I think, is really good. Tremendous value pick if you get him after the top 15. Um, and he's plays bigger than his size. Justin Patton, that's a gamble, but maybe one that pays off in a huge way. Um, Ike Enigbagu from UCLA, I'm not in on uh, personally. Ivan Rabb hurt his stock by coming back. Solid. Uh, overall, um, TJ Leaf, I think, will turn into a very good NBA player. I'm, I'm in on him. And then the big unknown is Harry Giles, mm-hmm, who sure. two years ago, before he got his, major, his second major knee uh, injury, was projected as the number one pick in this draft. Yeah. Um, quite frankly, um, no one knows how good or not good Giles is going to be. Yeah. He never rounded out into a player that was – anywhere close to dominant at the college level. Um, he is a tremendous kid. I would love it if Harry Giles somehow turned himself into a top 50 NBA player oh, five man. years from now. I have seen him at his best, and he was a beast. But the fact of the matter is he has had two major ACL injuries and needed a scope prior to the Duke season. Um, he is just the ultimate wild card. He'll go in the first round because he's worth it. 
but he won't go before the top 20 overall. This is a fascinating draft, Eric. Wow. So definitely. Um, what, two more two more things. Um, basically, I wanted to mention that you said about the kind of how players are, are scouted as this college thing. And it made me say you said they, they grow, they put on weight the differences between what you can do in college versus the NBA. And that's one another reason I like Tatum because I see that he has the maturity to put on that weight, to be silky smooth, although he's not as explosive. The Suns have plenty of explosive guys. Um, he can be silk, silky and he can really put on that weight. Also, we scout you scout for traits, not production. You scout for what can they transfer. And to me, it's what are their weaknesses fixable and that's kind of how I look at these players. How do you look at them when you're trying to scout for going to the NBA and projecting them for their careers? Oh, man. Loaded question. Um, <laughs> I happen to think that college production does matter on a case-by-case basis oh. and sometimes gets over uh, undervalued. Um, it's not everything, but, I mean, we don't have the time to do this. In fact, I'd love to podcast with you maybe – within a week closer to the draft, like that week leading up to it, maybe I'll do some research on this. Yeah. Uh, you can look at a litany of players that are making impacts in the NBA right now, really, really good players, and you can go back and see um, dominant traits that showed statistically of what they were able to do in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of GMs get burned based off of potential and trying to see what skill sets are able to, to translate. Um, I think that's a very hard thing to project because uh, it can be so case-by-case. Ultimately, I guess the the most simple way that I can put this from a college basketball writer evaluator's standpoint is when looking at how these guys project at the next level, one, were you an absolute top 15 talent in your high school class? Because historically, if you look at that, those guys, while they don't all pan out at the NBA level, if you were a top 15 player in your high school class, chances are you are going to be able to physically adapt at the NBA level and at least be given a chance. There are so many other factors that have to come into play, but that's number one. Number two, how much, and this is, you got to know the game and you got to be watching the game. How much did you, in, in your style of play, in your attitude, how much did you impact your team's ability to win at the college level? Hmm. I absolutely think that has tremendous value. I I think stuff like that is what San Antonio chases. Um, Individually, when you look at scouting, body type, how well you match up against players at the college level, when you get guys in one-on-ones, or if you're scouted and you're constantly double-teamed, how do you handle those kind of situations? Um, and then if you're if you're a big-time – if you're a big player and you're lacking in certain ways, why? Like why wasn't Larry Markin an, an even more dominant defensive player? He was solid. He wasn't as good as he should have been, and he wasn't asked to pass a lot. Um, Markkinen's a, a tremendous prospect here. He's one of the best true seven-footers from a three-point shooting perspective in the history of college basketball, and he only played one year. Um, but I sometimes wonder why certain guys who are ranked really high, and when I watch them play at the college level, they so clearly did not impact them, impact their teams the way that they should have. Sometimes that's coaching. And sometimes you'll have NBA guys say, listen, I just didn't trust the kid in that system, and I think that we can get more out of him at the next level than this certain coach did. Um, there is no one magic answer. Obviously, there is no one solution. Um, and it's what makes the draft so interesting and so fun. And yet we talk about all this, Eric. Let's keep in mind, 
that in an average draft, and I think this is an above-average draft, but in an average draft, you are only going to get four to eight players tops that will wind up being players of legitimate significance in the NBA. It's wild. Hmm, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think we have more from the fifth from the Booker the Booker uh, Towns draft. Um, but you're right. That, I mean, when you look back on these drafts from 06, 05, I mean, apart from a couple where you had sort of slight influx like the uh, the LeBron draft, um, a couple I think another a couple other ones in the mid uh, late 2000s. The, you're right. There is only about four players in the top ten or so that are actually still high-level players in this league. Tons of those other ones are role players, but like they're not impacting. They're playing under 20 minutes a game. They're they're usable for certain situations. Their their bodies to have that can do fouls that can still somewhat contribute. But you're right. It's not that many players in a draft that can, can really contribute. I mean, it really tails off there. Yeah, it's wild. It's just just the reality of it, too. Mm-hmm. And that's why you know the NBA draft used to be like 7, 8, 9, 10 rounds. Now it's just two. It's all they need. And even a number of players are able to break in as undrafted free agents. Um, there is no perfect thing. It's a lot about who you are, how you fit, where you go, um, and each player is a, is a different case study. Exactly. Uh, we could keep going, and we will go and do another one when we get close to the to the draft. Um, but I had one question: What is the player over the last ten years, or since you've been covering college basketball, that surprised you the most when you saw them in the NBA? Like that changed their game the most? Oh, that's all right. Uh, that's a really good question. Over the past decade, um. Man, give me a second to think out loud here, because there are. This does happen on occasion. Um, let me let me think in terms of who changed their game. I don't want to give you Kawhi because it's too easy. Although people don't really understand how much of a non non threat projected offensively Kawhi was when he went to the he league. Yeah, it just it's amazing what he's how he changed. Um, um, just rolling through teams here, just trying to pick and see because there are a few. Um, well, here's while well, you're thinking I, of that, even players okay. that were the opposite way, Jimmer Fredette. No, I expected this from Jimmer. Um, you expected him to be nothing because he, he, he was he was just brutal. He was so bad defensively that I thought it would hurt him. Oh wow. Uh, I will say Matthew Dellavedova was a very, very good college player. And I wrote a whole thing about how he was like the most underrated player when he was in college. Um, has He's done more than I... <laughs> Dude, no one thought he'd be even this. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, let me just run through a few quick players. Uh, there were a lot, a lot, a lot of skeptics on Drummond... He was a he was a big time high school recruit, mm-hmm. and then at UConn he was kind of here or there, and so a lot of people were skeptical on Drummond even like lasting more than five years in the NBA. Um, so he is he has been an interesting uh, he's dropped watch off this year though. Did he? A little bit, okay. yeah. He's I mean the the notoriety and the uh, I mean he's he's probably the one of the top players I would say to give you a twenty twenty game, but he's also. <laughs> 
can lose. He can just like like we were talking about. He can not impact a game, and you're like, dude, what? You're like the best player here. What are you doing? Yeah, I have my answer. Okay, it's it might be a little obvious, but this is definitely my answer because seeing him play in college, I just never would have expected him to be a top fifty player, let alone a top ten player. Oh my, that's Clay Thompson. Oh my god, um, really? Yeah, now Clay Thompson was an impact player at Washington State, but nobody, nobody had him being remotely this good. And the same goes for Steph, but Steph, you could see like the wow to his game. Yeah. Thompson being this kind of level defender and being part of the greatest shooting backcourt in the history of the NBA, um, a big time change there. That That's the one I think, if it's not more. It's it's near the top of the list. I'd have to really go and look over the years, but he is uh he is definitely one that stands out in a major way. Isn't Draymond also one? I mean, we saw him in Michigan State when you were here. The yes, but time. I also thought Draymond Green would be a fantastic NBA player. Now, not at this oh, level, but okay. I, I I thought Draymond Green would be an All Star, even though he was drafted in the second round. Okay. So he would not uh, qualify. I was very much in on Draymond as a college player okay. and translating to the NBA. Okay. Um, very interesting. Well, that is some great stuff. Why don't you plug what you have coming up next, and we'll get out of here. I got nothing to plug here, man. I want uh, I want people that have listened to this podcast because perhaps I tweeted about it. I want you to follow Eric. He is uh, – <laughs> listen, he needs he needs some more followers on Twitter. It is at Eric, E-R-I-C, underscore, Sar. That's S-A-A-R, <laughs> Eric Sar on Twitter. He's just shy of 500 followers as of us recording this podcast. If I can get you, let's get you up above 600 here. Let's get a nice little bump to him. He uh, he tweets often. He's uh, about the NBA, um, but knows his stuff. Really good dude. Let's uh, let's get this going. And he's got some other really good episodes of this podcast. So um, if you're into the NBA draft stuff or NBA in general, and you listen to this, be sure to check him out. And uh, buddy, thanks for having me on. And then yeah, let's plan. The draft is like June 22nd. Let's plan to do one like that weekend before the draft. So record like that Saturday or Sunday before the draft, and then we'll have an episode that can live like three or four days before those picks are made. Sounds good. Uh, Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, Have a great day.